On Monday of this week, I got a little spontaneous and I decided at the last minute to sign up for a 5K in Prospect Park. And the truth is, I am not in the best shape of my life right now. I've had three kids. I'm not really eating that healthy these days. I eat a lot of bagels, a lot of pizza, a lot of halal cart right across the street from the office. I'm not in shape at all. Um, I haven't trained, I haven't prepared, I haven't practiced, I haven't run in months. But I thought, you know what, it's 5K, I've done longer than that before, I'll be fine, no problem. And I thought, you know, the adrenaline, the excitement of being in a race with several thousand people, that'll get me through it. But on that Monday, as you probably know and remember, it was 90 degrees. And it was about 90% humidity as well. Not to mention, I don't know if you guys know this, but Prospect Park is kind of the ninth wonder of the world. There's this really, um, there's this thing about Prospect Park that really defies the law of science. And that is that it is a loop. But if you've ever run Prospect Park, I don't know how, but you are running uphill the entire way. I don't know how it's possible, but it is true. And all of that is a recipe for disaster for somebody who is not in shape. Okay. And so I showed up and about a half a mile into the 3.1 mile race, I realized it was going to be a long night. It was brutal. I thought I was going to die. Last time I ran a race like that, I weighed about 15, 20 pounds less. And it, I felt it as I was going, I was hot and I learned a valuable lesson. And that is that when it comes to running and racing, you've got to prepare You have to prepare. You have to practice. You can't just jump into a race and expect to succeed if you haven't done the training. You also have to prepare for unexpected challenges like weather and hills. I was talking to Jose. Where are you at, Jose, this morning? And he did a Tough Mudder yesterday. He said he did it with Brian and Alejandro and a couple others and Lindsay and Ryan. And he said they were all in really good shape. He said, but I decided at the last minute to do the Tough Mudder and I didn't train for it. And a Tough Mudder is, I think, like 10, 12 miles of running mixed with all kinds of crazy obstacles like running through fire and then like doing pull-ups, like monkey bars that go up, you know, like it's crazy. And Jose's like, hey, I came in this morning and he said, I'm so sore. I thought I was going to die yesterday. He didn't prepare. On the other hand, he said, Brian and the rest of it, he said they were crushing it. They were prepared. He wasn't. When it comes to describing a life of faith, though, the Apostle Paul often uses running and racing metaphors. In 1 Timothy 4, he says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I think that one of the reasons we get discouraged so often in our lives is because we haven't trained ourselves to experience the difficult races that we often have to run in our life. See, there are seasons of life where it feels like it's 90 degrees, it feels like it's uphill the whole way, and it feels like we'll never make it to the finish line. And sometimes the reason those seasons are so challenging for us spiritually is because we didn't prepare ourselves for them. Uh, Before I came to New York, I led a college ministry and at the beginning of every semester, I would, you know, I had a group, a large group of college students and I would always begin the semester by preaching a message. I would title it something like the three or four or five things that you need to know, learn now while you're young 
so that your faith will be built on a solid foundation as you grow older. And one of the points that I made every single year was I told these 18, 20 year old students, many of them had never faced any real suffering in their lives. Some of them had, but a lot of them had just never faced any suffering in their lives. And I would explain to them that one of the things that you've got to learn while you're young is you've got to develop a theology of suffering. Because when, if you are unprepared when suffering comes, you will not be able to learn it on the fly. And so what I, what I would tell them is I would say, you've got to right now nail down what you believe about God's character, what you believe about God's control and, uh, of the universe, and what you believe about God's uh, goodness and kindness and compassion, and what you believe about, the, about where he's taking eternity. So you've got to nail those things down now because if you don't and you hit a patch of suffering, you will question all those things. You can't learn that kind of theology on the fly. While you're trying to claw your way out of a pit, you can't at the same time build a foundation. And I would say you need to, you need to prepare for suffering now before it comes because if you don't, you'll have a whole lot of trouble when it comes. And as we come near to the end of the letter of the Philippians, letter to the Philippians, last week we talked about how Paul teaches us to pray when we're anxious, when we face circumstances that are challenging. But this week he offers us another guide for facing, uh, helping us fight our anxiety. In essence, he says that one of the ways that we will combat anxiety in our lives is if we take preventative measures by studying the things of God. By studying God's character, his faithfulness, and meditating on those things and practicing them so that when difficult seasons come, you will have a grip that you can hold on to. See, life can be difficult, and we all want to know, is there a way to thrive in the midst of the struggles and the challenges? And Paul says, yes, there is. In fact, he says, I've learned the secret to contentment. Now, how many of you want to be content, right? And you're like, is there a secret Tell me the secret. Paul says he's going to tell us the secret. This is what he says. Philippians chapter four, verse 10. I rejoice. And remember, he's in prison right now. He's writing from prison. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now listen, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, facing abundance and facing need. And you may have heard this verse before. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, verse 13. First, when I was a kid, I used to write I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on my baseball cleats (laughs) and under the visor of my cap. And I was always on the little on a little on the small side when I was a kid. And so when it came to baseball, I would think, you know what, if I can just all things through Christ who strengthens me, maybe I can get one over the fence. And so I'm going to write it on my cleats. I'm going to write it under the visor of my hat. And I thought that maybe it would help me. Right. But the truth is, Paul's not talking about. He's not talking about hitting a curveball. He's not talking about making a big sale or buying a house or getting a promotion. What he's talking about is facing life's greatest challenges with joy. He says, I've been brought low 
and I've been in abundance, but in every circumstance, I know the secret to contentment. It's Christ in all things who gives me strength. Listen, to, it, just to imagine what Paul, like what is behind those words. Paul isn't some guy, he's seen things. I mean, he's lived a hard life. And so for him to say, I know what it's like to be brought low, but I know how to have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. This isn't a guy who doesn't know what you're going through. Whatever you're facing, there, I, may, I may not be able to relate to whatever challenge you're facing, but Paul can. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 11 says, where Paul says all the things he's been through. He says, I've faced great labors, far more imprisonments than any of you, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands uh, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. All it takes for me is to be shipwrecked one time before I get back on a boat. (laughs) A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. That's the worst kind of pain, betrayal. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Those who have said untrue things about him in public. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. He says, I'm just scratching the surface. There's a whole lot more that I can't think of right now. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, Paul was kind of acted as a bishop of all sorts of churches all over the Roman world. And I pastor one church. And I'm like, I, I have anxiety for you guys. I can't imagine pastoring multiple churches. But he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever. See, that's a hard life. But Paul says he has learned to be content. And he says, in spite of all of that, I can endure all of those things because it's Christ I've learned is the one who gives me strength. And this is the key thing I want you to see this morning is that this didn't come natural to him. And he didn't learn it on the fly. Paul, we often think that Paul was just like abnormal, you know? We think, you know what? Yeah, Paul was able to endure those things, but I could never endure that. He was kind of a super Christian. And when we think of Paul, I think we probably have like some six foot seven strong guy in mind who's just manly and bold and courageous. But when we read through the scriptures, we know that he was a regular guy just like us. But he endured these things not because he was awesome, but because he believed in a God, in a a God who sent his son for him and gave him the strength and the power to endure those things. He learned how to endure seasons of joy. It wasn't natural to him. And so to learn something means that you have to study something, right? And to study God, that's called theology. And if I'm honest, one of the biggest weaknesses, I think, in American Christianity right now is laziness when it comes to the study of theology. Is laziness when it comes to our discipline to study the things of God. We live in a culture where we want everything fast and everything easy, right? We have iPhones, microwaves, Google, 24-hour news cycle, fast food. 
We are conditioned to expect everything to be quick and easy and catered exactly to our specifications. And I think many Christians approach our spiritual lives the exact same way. We want to grow quickly. We want our devotion to be. If you notice, read devotional books that are published today versus the devotional books that were published and read by Christians 100 years ago. We want 10 second devotionals in the morning before we head out on our work. Head out for work in the morning. We, we, instead of doing the hard work of wrestling with the Bible, studying the scriptures, studying God's character, spending time in prayer, reading books by great Christian thinkers, being in growth groups where you can learn from people in community that will help you uh, understand the things of God, where we can be sharpened by other people. What we often do instead of those things is we rely on quick fixes. We hope that a 30-minute sermon on Sunday and a few Christian songs on our iPod during the week will give us the strength that we need to push through our circumstances. And it's, that's not enough. And that's why so many times I see it all the time. I see people in churches that see, things seem to be going so well for them and they're in church and they're, they're in community and they're, they're, they feel like their relationship with God is, is going somewhere. But then the moment that suffering hits their lives, we just don't see them for six months. Because they were waiting on little quick fixes to get them through the moments. But there are some times where situations come into your life where a song on K-Love is not going to fix it. What you need is you need to have the word of God, the scriptures drilled so deep into who you are. So that when you are cut, Charles Spurgeon says you bleed the gospel. I've heard it said many times that Christians are like balloons sometimes. We come to church on Sunday so that we can get popped up and we go high up in the sky. And then we kind of hit the apex around Sunday night. By the time we wake up Monday morning, we get the case of the Mondays and the thing starts falling. And then maybe on Wednesday, we'll go to a Bible study. It'll get popped up just a little bit. But by the time Sunday rolls around, it's right back down to here. And we need a good sermon and a couple songs to pop us back up. And we just and we and, and, and sometimes we can function like that week to week to week to week. But then there are times in our lives where a violent storm comes. And what happens to a balloon when the wind comes? It goes flying far away. But the Bible doesn't refer to our faith as a balloon. Hebrews six calls faith an anchor. We have this a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is what our faith should be. Listen to what Paul encourages the Philippians to do when they face difficult circumstances. This is, we read 10 through 13. Now I'm reading what came before it. This is verse eight. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And how do you know those things? Listen, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is what Paul says. He says, hey, look, all those things we've studied together, all those things we've studied about God, when the storms come, recall them. Think about them. Hey, verse eight, he says, think about these things. It's this word legitsomai in the Greek. We can be translated as ponder, dwell, muse, reflect, ruminate, imagine, daydream, focus, chew on, mull over, or as we often say, meditate on. 
And the imagery is often of Hebrew meditation. Psalm 1 gives us an example of what Hebrew meditation is. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. In everything he does, he prospers. When we hear meditation, we often think of the Lion King, Rafiki, you know, you know, that, that thing. Or we think of like Buddhism or Nirvana, you know, like we think of sitting in a room with our legs crossed, emptying our minds. But when the Bible talks about meditation, it's not talking about emptying your mind. It's talking about filling your mind. Meditation is not emptying your mind. Meditation is filling it. But with what? Paul says that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is just, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And how do we know these things? By studying the things of God. When I start to feel anxious over situations in my life, I have this tendency to run these worst case hypotheticals through my brain. You ever laid in bed at night and like one person, like one friend says, hey, can we talk in the morning? And you're going to bed at night. You're like, I must. What did I do to totally like they hate me now? What do they want to talk about? They're going to end our friendship. They, they, I mean, they're like, what is going to happen? And you're like running all these things and all they want to do is just grab coffee. Right. But you lay in bed at night and you just run all the worst possible hypotheticals through your brain. And you stress yourself out, you get anxious, and usually the things you're stressing yourself out about are far beyond the realm of possibility. And it makes you more anxious. But Paul says, don't think about what is hypothetical, think about what is true. I have three children. And, but there was a time when Rebecca and I, did, we were childless. But we desperately wanted kids. And so we began, we began an adoption process. And we were told that the adoption process would take seven months. Two years later and $30,000 later, we found ourselves still waiting without a child. Most painful season of our lives, without a doubt. Many of you know that feeling of wanting a child but not having one. And there were also, in, at this one particular point in time, there were changes in international adoption law that threatened to end our adoption. I mean, it looked, there was a moment where we thought $30,000 and two years of prayers were just going to be wasted. And on one particular day, I remember coming home from work and I could just see that Rebecca had been crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she started just listing off all the what ifs. What if we never have a child? What if the law prevents us from adopting this, uh, uh, adopting a child. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this? What if that? Am I ever going to be a mother? And that night, we opened the scriptures to Philippians chapter four, and we did an exercise together with tears in our eyes. And we said, let's not dwell on the what ifs, but let's dwell on the what is true. Whatever, what is true and we sat down with a legal pad and we made a list. What is true? God loves orphans more than we do. What is true? He loves us more than we know. What is honorable? Revelation 4.11. Worthy is he, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For he created all things and by his will they existed and were created. What is honorable? He is. And we went down the list. What is pure? What is lovely? What is commendable? What is excellent? What is worthy of praise? And that evening in our kitchen around the table, we were recalling scriptures about God's faithfulness, his loving kindness, his graciousness, his justice. And at the end of that conversation, 
with tears in our eyes, we were worshiping and we were content, even though our situation had not changed. We were still childless. The phone didn't magically ring and say, we've got a child for you. Come get him. Our situation remained the same, but our minds were no longer fixed on the hypothetical, but they were fixed on what we knew to be true. And we experienced peace in that moment. Listen to me. We could not have done that in that moment had it not been for years of she and I studying the scriptures, spending time in prayer and learning and trusting in the character of God. Because if we had not had that foundation, we would have doubted God's goodness in that moment and we would have despaired. But we were prepared for the moment. Our spiritual fitness, so to speak, was conditioned to handle the 90 degree heat and the uphill run that we were facing. And see, in difficult times, you may feel like you have nothing to cling to, but you can cling to that which is true. You may be single and you don't want to be. And you hear the lies in your heart that tell you that you're unlovable. Fix your mind on what is true, though. You are a beloved child of God. You are his bride. He has pursued you. He has wooed you. He continues to love you even though you look to other things. He is more faithful to you than any spouse could ever be. You're childless. What is true? God loves you. He cares for you. And if you will give your burdens to him, a peace that surpasses understanding, he promises to give you. Will your circumstances change? Maybe not. But we do know that God desires to give good things to those whom he loves. And sometimes the good thing is not what we ask it for it to be, but the good thing is simply contentment that he gives through his spirit. Whatever your circumstance, ask yourself, what is true? Not what might be true, not what may come to pass, but what is true about God? See, your circumstances might not change, but you can fix your eyes on truths that are greater than your circumstances. And when you fix your mind on these things, what happens is you get swept up into them and you can find beauty and joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. There's statistics that show that in economic recessions and depressions, the entertainment industry explodes. Of the top 10 highest grossing films of all time, six were released during the economic collapse of 2008 and 2010. When you adjust for inflation, the two highest grossing movies of all time are Gone with the Wind and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, both released during the Great Depression. We find relief from our pain and our worry when we are swept up in a story that's greater than the one that we're living in. I read a review one time for the movie Grand Budapest Hotel. Obscure niche thing, but a great movie. But one of the critics said, this movie is a beautiful dream that helps us deal with with the slings and arrows of our banal real world with a little more pluck. But there is a story that's much greater than Grand Budapest Hotel. And there's a story that's much better than Snow White and Star Wars or The Incredibles 2. There's a story that is greater than the life and the experiences that we are currently mired in and one that will indeed help us deal with the slings and arrows of the real world and give us joy. And that story is the gospel. The story is the character of God, the God who is eternal, infinite, who in 
out of his own joy, created all things. He created a world that is good. He created us to in his image, to bear his image and to worship him. But yet we rebelled against him. We chose to separate ourselves from him through our sin. But in Christ, he comes into, back into our world. He puts on flesh. He lives the life we can never live. Dies the painful, brutal death that we deserve and rises from the dead. He defeats death so that we can find new life. The life that we destroyed in ourselves through our own sin, he has come to reverse and draw back to himself. The secret to peace is being caught up in this story. Paul says that we must meditate on this story because it's the only story that's completely true, completely noble, and completely just, and completely lovely, commendable, and excellence. We must learn what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves and preach this story to ourselves. Your situation or your circumstance may not change. Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. What is Paul's secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's his secret. What is the promise of Jesus? We read this last week, that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you reflect on what is true, you will receive a peace that surpasses your circumstances. Let me share a story that I've shared probably way too many times with you guys, but it's just too good. One of my favorite songs is It Is Well With My Soul. It was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago in the 1870s. And in 1871, during the Chicago fire, his home and his office was burned down. Every possession that he had in this life was taken from him through the great fire of Chicago in 1871. And as he was trying to figure out how to move on with his life after that, he and his family decided that they would move to England. And so two years later, he sent his wife, Anna, and his four daughters on a ship to England. And his plan was he was going to get their affairs in order in Chicago. They would get the home in order and he would meet up with them later. But just a few weeks later, he received a telegram that had only two words from his wife. And it said, saved alone. The ship that his wife and four daughters were on hit another ship and sank, and all four of his little girls drowned. And when he received the news, he got on the next ship to England so that he could go get his wife and comfort her. And while he was on the ship, he wrote one of the most famous hymns of all time. And this is what he says. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when things are good, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when things are bad, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now what would make, now why would a man dealing with his grief and seeking peace spend an entire song talking about Jesus? You would think he would talk about his pain, what he feels. This is how I feel. Why does he spend the entire song writing about Jesus? Listen to what he says. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. His four little girls have drowned and he's talking about his own sin. Why? What does that have to do with his four little girls? Everything. See, because he knew that at the cross, Christ bore our sins. And the Bible shows that because of this, we have a Savior who has suffered with us and for us. He knows the pain that Horatio Spafford was feeling. He knows what it's like to experience loss. And we find rest in knowing where the story is headed. That because of the cross and because of the resurrection, the four daughters at the bottom of the ocean is not the end of his story. And this is why he writes in the final verse, But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. When he was grieving the loss of his four daughters and the loss of all of his possessions, he looked to the cross and he looked to the new heavens and new earth because he knew what was true. Something that was even truer than the very real and very true pain that he experienced losing his daughters. But he knew that God was reconciling all things and that there would come a day where he would see his girls again. And when you need peace and contentment and you need something to lean on, you can lean on Jesus as hard as you need to because he was enough for the Apostle Paul in his day. He was enough for Rebecca and me in the time of our greatest grief. And he is enough for Horatio Spafford and he's enough for you. People often say God is a crutch for the weak. Yep, guilty. <laughs> but I'm weak. <laughs> I'm not that strong. And I need something reliable to lean on. And Paul says, that which is true and lovely, Christ himself, is a reliable crutch in the seasons of weakness.